Well, welcome to this special gathering of the Canadian Club of Toronto as we celebrate Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee. A fitting that lunch today should be here in the Royal York's Concert Hall, the very place Her Majesty spoke to Canadians as her last visit to Canada drew to a close on June 5th, 2010. The links between Canada and our royal family are both profound and enduring. And just how has the Queen and her family found such a warm place in the hearts of so many Canadians? Well, I think it's pretty fair to say that the Queen has worked pretty hard at it. She's visited Canada 22 times during her reign and traveled to every one of our provinces and territories. Just after a year ago, it was the first place that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge visited after their wedding. And the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall will be in Canada this year as part of the Diamond Jubilee celebrations. But more than just royal visits, the role of the Queen and her representative, the Governor General, are fundamental elements of our parliamentary democracy. It's, it's something we are reminded of when the role of Governor General very much came to life during the years 2004 and 11 when we had minority governments. In fact, I think you could observe that Canadians are renewing their attachment to the monarchy. Last August, Royal was restored to the names of Canada's Air Force and Navy. Today, our guest, John Fraser, will share his thoughtful view on the monarchy, its role in Canada today and the years ahead, and uh, he's told me he'll share some royal secrets as well. I'd say that uh, there's no one better informed or more articulate on matters royal in Canada than John Fraser. In addition to serving as master of Massey College at the University of Toronto, where you know, he plays a really unique and remarkable role in facilitating a dialogue that takes place nowhere else in this country between academe, business, and civil society. He's had a long and distinguished career as a journalist, starting as a summer student copy boy and junior reporter at the Toronto Telegram at age 16. He went on to great success. His work published in leading journals right around the world. The winner of three national newspaper and seven national magazine rewards, he adds the distinction of being named Editor of the Year. He has 10 books to his credit. And of course, John has written extensively on the royal family. His recent book, The Secrets of the Crown, Canada's Affair with Royalty, is a must-read this Diamond Jubilee year. For a lifetime of work, he was made the member of the Order Canada in 2001. John Fraser, the podium of the Canadian Club, Canada's podium of record is yours. Great tie, Jamie. Thank you, thank you to the honor of the Canadian Club for inviting me here today. Thank you to the sponsor. Thank you to former Prime Minister Turner, former Chief Justice Lesage, and many other very distinguished people here, to members of my college, uh, especially the junior fellows. You're always supposed to start speeches with, um, and my honor guard. I forgot my honor guard. This is the way I usually travel as master of Massey College with the 48th Highlanders and the Governor General's horse guards. 
one of the bits of fun in doing research um, for the book was, was coming across apocryphal tales of the royal family in strange places in Canada. Um, and what I liked about them was that they all had to do with a sort of embarrassed politesse. And I've seen it happen at Massey College. Uh, one, I just recently heard a great story, an example uh, of this, in which um, a junior fellow of my college who's a graduate student and was assigned to a member of the Quadrangle Society of the college. And it's just an exchange of meals. And the Quadrangle in question was Graham Gibson, uh, the husband of Margaret Atwood. And he was invited to the, to the, um, the Gibson Atwood house. And the junior fellow in question was in, 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 in uh, science rather than literature. And at the course of the beginning of the meal, having made all the appropriate and polite commentary, he turned around and said, and what does Mrs. Gibson do? <laughs> and actually, she, she gave a whole different biography of herself. I think she quite enjoyed it. That my two favorite apocryphal tales in the royal family, one has the Duke of Edinburgh in various places. Um, well, my friend Riley's here, so I'm sure it was North Bay or Sudbury or somewhere like that. And it would be at a church hall, and there's, there's dinner or lunch. And as the waitress comes to take away the dinner plate, she says, hold the fork, Duke, there's pie. <laughs> and the other one I, I really loved uh, has to do with the Queen Mother, who... Um, this, this makes it across the Atlantic. She's at the opening of an, a, a, a retirement home, a, se a senior citizen's home. It could be in Bournemouth. It could be in, in Saskatoon. It doesn't matter where. You, the story, you hear it all over. And during the course of tea, she's exchanging commentary with a, a dear old soul and realizes that the woman has no idea who she is. And so she just quietly says, my dear, do you, do you know who I am? And the woman looks at her and says, no, but if you ask at the desk, they'll tell you. So I'm, I'm here to tell you about how I became a flack for the House of Windsor. Um, it's a strange story um, and can be told, I hope, in 20, 23 minutes. Um, it began with a challenge debate. Uh, I am a lifelong lover of the Crown of Canada. I think that's one of the things that makes this country tick um, in a quiet and um, unostentatious but useful way. But I have watched the erosion um, contrary to that wonderful introduction from Jamie, I've watched a certain erosion, particularly in the communities I live in, journalism and in academe. And I didn't know quite how to go about stopping it or helping to stop it until the day came when a colleague of mine, a senior fellow at the college, Professor Michael Bliss, the famous historian, challenged me to go into a debate on the role of the Crown in Canada. And he and another colleague um, of the Disputatious School um, had concocted four debates on, on irritating themes in Canada. Um, one was uh, Pierre Trudeau is the worst prime minister in Canadian history. Um, we were right to hang Louis Riel. Uh, multiculturalism is a failure. And the one Professor Bliss decided I should, uh, I should go up against him was um, called Off With Their Heads. The monarchy is a dangerous relic from the past and it's time to send the House of Windsor packing. And the thing I, I liked about Professor Bliss was his passion as a Republican. He was a Tory and a Republican, which sounded weird to me. And I was a sort of middle of the roader, a red Tory and, and a monarchist. Um, but I thought, okay, well, 
Things are changing a little bit. The Queen got a wonderful reception in Ottawa, uh, Canada Day. The, the, the new Prime Minister is sort of sounding a little more positive. Um, and um, even though he never danced with Princess Margaret, like someone in this room has. <laughs> um, anyway, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to bat for something I believe in. And even, even if somehow this country decides to, to um, get out of, of supporting uh, the Crown, um, I'll at least have had my say. And the first big shock was over a thousand people turned up for the debate in the, in the um, great concourse of, of the Royal Ontario Museum. That was shock number one. Shock number two was I won it. Uh, I won it about um, 65-35. Um, what I didn't win was a small group who were waverers and I was trumped by Professor Bliss at the end with a, with a, a, a particularly unpleasant attack on, on Prince Charles. And I wasn't ready for that. I didn't realize you could have a formal conclusion. So I, I was a bit chagrined that I'd let my side down. But um, fortunately for me, uh, Mr. Ken White was in the audience, the, the, the guy who seems to run Roger's publishing empire and, and an old friend from my days at Saturday night, and he asked me if I would write some essays on Crown and Country for Maclean's. And then uh, a saint-like figure who's sitting at a table down here, Sarah McLaughlin, the publisher of, of um, Anansi Press, um, said she'd like a, 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 a book on the Crown to coincide with all the events that were happening. So I was off and running. And then the debates were so successful, they decided to hold it again in Ottawa, and they're going to hold it again in Edmonton, and Calgary, and Vancouver, and they're paying. So I'm, I'm onto this in a big way. Um, what I hadn't realized is, is that once you can, in a fair hearing, once you can get people beyond the things that they find strange about having the crown in Canada, you can actually make a case. You can't win over everyone. It's a bit like opera. If you don't like the music, the plot's not going to do it for you. But, but given a fair hearing, you can make a very good case for the crown in Canada. Um, the motion that, that um, the, the, these debate series, which were part of the Monk series on history debates, was, was pejoratively framed to irritate people like me and uh, who think that the crown is one of the number of reasons why this has been such a successful country for 150 years. On the other hand, I, I don't actually think people think in Canada that they live under a monarchy. It sounds like a strange thing to say. Um, I don't think we ever did. I don't think even during the, the famous Diamond Jubilee celebrations of Queen Victoria that we thought we lived under the Canadian monarchy. It doesn't sound right. We don't hear the phrase very often. Um, we don't even hear what I like to think we have, which is monarchy light. Um, we don't read it, we don't think it, we don't sense it. And at the same time, I don't think we think of ourselves as living in a republic. That sounds even more weird, the Republic of Canada. So what do we have? And who are we? And what can we call our system? Because we certainly have a queen who wears a crown and who has an heir who may yet become a king in the Royal York Hotel, of all places, I humbly offer this convoluted definition of the true north strong and free. For the better part of six decades, believe me, it's the best that I can come up with. Here goes. Canada is a loose confederation of uptight provinces with strong regional anxieties, united primarily by geography, cold weather, a bifractured cultural history, 
a tradition of evolving parliamentary democracy wrapped around an obscured and undeniable parliamentary notion of the Crown. It's a notion that riddles our history and constitutional record, nevertheless is featured in everything from seemingly half our place names in schools and streets and theatres to vice-regal appointees, royal assent for legislation, and also through things like crown land, crown attorneys, crown highways. Outsiders notice this all the time, but we take it mostly for granted. That's us. That and a native instinct for self-deprecation in order to avoid criticism. When I debated with Professor Bliss, I delighted to take issue with the word dangerous. I mean, I mean, it was incredible. He really tried to make an argument that this was a dangerous institution. So I wanted to meet the Canadians who woke up shivering with fear in their beds when they realized that Elizabeth II was still on the throne. I want to meet the poor sod, terrified to drop off to sleep at night by the thought that the Governor General might make the Prime Minister wait two hours before allowing the prorogation of Parliament. I need to meet the aesthete, terrorized by the prospect of ever having a conversation with Prince Charles on the subject of genetically modified tomatoes, show me a speaker of a provincial legislature who keeps his eye forever peeled at the entranceway to his or her chamber for fear that a power-crazed lieutenant governor will suddenly come bursting through, seize the mace, and retake the throne by force. The only actual danger I can see attached to the Crown in Canada is that we can be made to look like a bunch of immature children for not recognizing its value to us historically, or a bunch of irresponsible meddlers who want to fix something that's not really broken. So I took exception also to the word relic and the contempt implicit in it, to the abdication from our own everyday reality that it represents. There have been so many attempts to diminish the role of the Crown in Canada over the past few decades. And when Professor Bliss and I first debated this issue a couple of years ago, it was before the current government had started putting into place some of the changes, including the return of the royal moniker to the two branches of our armed forces. This put both Bliss and me in an uncomfortable position, he of attacking his natural ideological co-religionist and I of defending them. We're both seasoned warriors on this issue and can handle this anomaly, so we actually conduct a civil discourse on a key disagreement in the Canadian Constitution, a civil discourse, which is a novelty to be sure. My view is the Harper administration has simply replaced and returned to regular use symbols that were removed without any real prior consent and were part of the fabric of Canada. At the same time, successive administrations paid only lip service to the ability of the Crown to evolve within the Canadian story. And to me, this quiet evolutionary process is one of the glories of our country. Amongst other things, it gives us some clear delineation between ourselves and our chums south of the border. So let's look at the United States for a moment. It's not just that the Crown gives Canada a really useful sense of separate identity from the States. So far from being a relic, we can point to an evolving Canadian Crown as a sign of how Canadians carry their history forward. A sovereign nation with its own definition of a sovereign can point to the devolved powers of the Crown as a sign of how deliberate and systematic our democracy is. Our sovereign can do nothing without the will of the people expressed through Parliament. In the United States, it's, it seemed to me for many years, they keep re-electing George III every four years. When the Americans had their revolution and set about defining their new head of state, they modeled it on a Hanoverian monarch, except it was to be elected indirectly by a college of electors. 
Many of the powers of an American presidency today, from appointing his own cabinet without reference to a legislature or declaring a state of war, can be traced back to an 18th century concept of state leadership. Of course, there are checks and balances, but there's also a kind of stratification and rigidity to the office that we, that we have evolved away from, and it's very evident these days. We have learned some important things about ourselves and about the Crown in the past couple of years. One of the things is its resiliency. I think this is partly thanks to the clear sense of duty of our Queen, which the Jubilee helps us to focus on. I'm bemused by the respectful Republican argument that once our Queen is dead, it will be the appropriate time to replace the system. We won't do it now because we're polite, because we're Canadian, and she's done such a good job. But once she's died, we can start frothing at the mouth and start choosing our first president. But first, let's have a referendum, just like Australia, and check out all the fault lines in this country, which we have worked so hard to keep in check all these years. And what about Australia? They did have that referendum a decade and a half ago on whether to abolish the monarchy, and it turned out not to be about the monarchy, but the ugly feelings Australians had about the central government's desire to dominate regional politics. Better the devil known than the unknown is not really a stirring argument on behalf of the Crown, but it still operates as a motivating force. And if you don't believe me, hold a referendum in Canada. Instead, I'm arguing that we continue along the way that has helped define our country as has come to all of us. Our Queen is the latest in a long golden chain that connects the Canadian story. The mystery and magic behind our constitutional arrangements are all tied to a hereditary monarchy. It's our past, which if denied will confound our future. It's our dignity, which if cast carelessly aside will make us a crasser people. And it's the protection of our rights, which if abandoned could lead to demagogic manipulation of our excess. Most important of all, the Crown defines our uniqueness and is evidence of a mature community that can carry forward its history and heritage and uniqueness with pride. That's where I got with Professor Bliss. I thought I'd done well. And then he brought in Prince Charles. So what about Prince Charles? What about Prince Charles? Throughout most of his adult life, he's been subjected to more ridicule, innuendo, outright fabrication, and grotesque invasion of privacy than almost any other individual alive today on the public circus here. Part of the problem, of course, is that he has opinions that some people disagree with. An equal part of the problem is that the women in the House of Windsor live a long time, and he's been in the waiting line longer than any heir in the throne in history. The longevity of the, Windsor women, of the Windsor women is not a joke, at least not to him. Our Queen looks set to break even the record of her own mother who saw out her century. Since Charles was born in 1948, and the Queen won't reach her centenary till 2026, and say we give her two years of grace following that, epical moment, Charles can look forward to wearing the imperial state crown around about 2028 or 2029, at the ample age of 80 or 81. His enemies wonder if he winces when loyalists say, long live the queen, which shows how little they understand Prince Charles. Everything that is decent and good about Prince Charles comes as a shock to those who insist he is a crank or a wonk or a wuss or a doofus or whatever. His skill at athletics, his bravery during assassination attempts, and check out Google for the one in Australia in 1994 if you want the definition of sangfroid. His prophetic wisdom about ecology, his genius as a loving and wise father, his careful aim at arrogant professionals like architects who enjoy obliterating or desecrating monuments of the past such as the National Gallery in London or the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. <laughs> his astute... 
his astuteness as a businessman, his support of corporate responsibility, his effectiveness in fighting social inertia amongst the young and unemployed, his inspired ability to transcend religious differences and animosity, his dutifulness to his mother and sovereign. Whenever you hear about these qualities that Charles possesses, they always seem to be presented as a footnote to a portrait of either an idiot savant at best or more typically a meddling, dangerous fool. And still he waits and waits. Not once, however, has Prince Charles ever complained about the wait, not even hinted at the frustration of being perpetually second in line. Vice presidents in the United States can hardly take being in the invidious succession for four years, let alone two terms. In communist China or the old Soviet Union, to be second in line under Chairman Mao or Comrade Stalin was usually a death sentence. A long time ago, however, Charles clearly came to the obvious realization that he would be Prince of Wales for decades and king for only a few years. And with that realization came the decision that it would be as the heir to the throne, rather than as someone sitting upon it, that he would have to make his mark in the span of his lifetime. This long wait gave Charles more freedom to pursue his interests and causes and to speak out about them. It has also allowed all of the doubters, nitpickers, naysayers, and the rest of the sour brigade among the commentariat to pick away at his role, his person, his dreams, and all his solid achievements, along with whatever turmoil and errors are also part of his life, as they are part of everyone's life. As Shakespeare's Henry V duly observes, he has become the subject to quote, the breath of every fool. But what is especially depressing in the attacks on Prince Charles is the shallowness of the research and insight coupled with what the observers always feel is the irrefutable logic of calling for an end to the monarchy in Canada. For me, there are only two legitimate questions here. Is it for certain that Charles will succeed to the throne and be King of Canada? And the other obvious one is what kind of king will he be? I can't answer for sure the first question. It depends on how we collectively decide our national destiny. I'm one of those who intend to fight for crown and country while I have breath, but I do accept it's not up to me alone or even up to Professor Bliss alone. On the other hand, I think Charles would make a great king. His life is much more than an open book. It is an entirely exposed encyclopedia. The first thing it is important to understand is that he has used his position of prominence to speak out on issues that inflame some observers, but he's far from being the dilettante the media so often accuses him of being. He's researched and thought deeply about issues as well as using his position to consult widely and distinctively. More than any other member of the royal family, he understands the multicultural and multiracial world we all now find ourselves in. He has also looked deeply into the stresses of life for ordinary citizens. His compassion is easily aroused and deeply felt, and he feels a compulsion to investigate and where he thinks it important to speak out. Prince Charles does understand the restraints of his position and the per parameters of the permissible. He's just not prepared to accept other people's definitions of those parameters. And when he speaks out, it is usually after long consultation and brooding. His own look, outlook on the world is dramatically different from that of, say, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, but that in itself seems to me a plus and an argument to put up against those who think the Harper administration's championing of the monarchy will identify the institution with partisan politics. On the one hand, we have a tree hugger, and on the other, we have a tree feller. But I think Prince Charles as king has been well-schooled constitutionally and would know exactly how to handle all this. I also think we'd be lucky to have him, and he'd be lucky to have us. Thank you very much.
they want. Sure. Okay. Thank you, John. Uh, my name's John Duffy. I'm a former vice chair, or vice uh, something of uh, the Canadian Club. Vice, uh, vice exactly, uh, Minister for Vice. Um, the Masters agreed to take a couple of questions. Uh, the first one that comes to mind uh, is um, what can we volunteer Michael Bliss for because he's not here to defend himself, um, which would be in the best traditions of University of Toronto governance. Um, but uh, may maybe while people take, take a couple of seconds to formulate a question, does anyone have a question for the Master? Um, any, off the top? Let me just ask one, uh, maybe while people compose and we can use it as a jumping off point. Um, sometimes in the watches of the night, I've been worried about a couple of events coming together. Um, succession, uh, although long may she reign, and I'm sure she'll outlive everything, um, coinciding with a possible Patsy Quebecois government uh, in the province of Quebec. Uh, and uh, even if you really want to get paranoid, adding to it some sort of minority government scenario. Um, <laughs> Uh, with, a, with a prorogation crisis. That's, that's stuff that sometimes people like me use to keep themselves awake. Um, but tell me a bit about as Quebec evolves, maybe tell us a bit about as Quebec evolves, um, how you see the monarchy refreshing itself or maintaining tolerance for itself uh, in La Belle Province. Please. Well, um, I think it's, in real politics, I think it's a really weird situation. If if we were to have a constitutional debate, a serious one in Ottawa, with all the heads of the provinces coming together, I think the last province that would agree to the abolition of the monarchy would be Quebec, for a very simple reason. Um, it's so low on its, on its agenda for what it has to do with Canada. It's probably the bottom of the agenda. There's uh, handling um, Medicare costs, there's Aboriginal land disputes, there's, there's the whole transfer of, of, of taxes between Quebec and, and the rest of Canada. So in terms of a disputatious issue on, 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 a, on a real politic agenda, Quebec probably would be behind Newfoundland and Saskatchewan before it were to prove the, uh, an idea of abolishing uh, a constitutional uh, uh, role for, for the Crown. The other thing to mention is that the Crown functions quite well in Quebec all the time. They have a lieutenant governor, which is part of the evolution of our system. Um, I, don't, I don't think the Crown is, is at the moment, uh, a, a hugely important entity in Quebec. On the other hand, I don't think it is the source of irritation that used to be. What's happening in Canada is, is a kind of quiescence, generally speaking, of, of uh, political rancor. I don't know that it's going to stay that way forever. Nothing stays the same forever. But right now, I just don't think it's much of an issue. If the scenario that you suggested happens, um, I think greater danger is not the, the crown in Canada, it's Canada. And um, that, that's, that's basically um, something that Canada has faced and always will face. That nothing, nothing is solved perfectly for all time in this country. Well, I can breathe a bit easier. Perhaps people have other anxieties they would like Mr. Fraser to, uh, to calm. Are there any other questions about the monarchy reflections? Yes, John. Sorry, a little surprised by the tone of the attack on the forthcoming visit by Pat Martin of the NDP. Uh, we have, of course, a tradition of loyalty among the Liberal Party, generally speaking, with exceptions like John Manley. But do you think that with the, the, uh, the NDP now 
um, as the official opposition, that that's going to change and the monarchy will get caught between a loyal Conservative Party and, and a Republican New, New Democratic Party? Yeah, it's, very, it's a really good question, and I, I think there is a real danger. I, um, I can't just hurl Prince Charles at it either. Um, uh, Mr. Mulcair's uh, predecessor was, was a supporter of the Crown in Canada. Um, I think Mr. Mulcair will not be able to resist seeing the Crown as something that's part of the Stephen Harbour identikit, and that's where that plays into. Um, but um, the more Mr. Mulcair survives as leader of the opposition, I have great faith in his abilities to, to um, figure out that the alternatives will get more and more alarming as, as he concentrates on them. But the man has to be allowed to make his mark and, uh, at the beginning. Um, if, he, if he gets the NDP going down a road of um, anti-crown, um, I think he'll find it's a cul-de-sac that he won't like the no exit at the end. So I've got great faith in his, his, his real politics sense eventually. But I do think a new man has to be allowed to bark a bit. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Yes, um, the, uh, the, the woman in the back. Please uh, give us your name if you could please as well. Thank you. Hi, John. My name is Caitlin. Um, so as you were saying, I mean, we're, we have Queen Elizabeth pretty much in the chair for, in the throne for a long time. And then after that, Charles and then William. Um, so we're pretty much guaranteed to have old people in the throne for the next, you know, generation or so. And with young people getting a lot more power, say, through the internet and through organizations like Anonymous, um, how do you think the crown can stay relevant in a world where there's a lot of old people in the throne, but there's a lot of young people in power? It's a good question. Old people are a damn nuisance, really. I, <laughs> I agree. Um, the royal family, though, if you, if you look at its history, has this genius of producing young people and, and hurling, them into the, um, hurling them into the void. So I think, I think one of the things that we're, we watched this past year is, is young people being deployed for the family firm. Um, I think William and, and Catherine, um, some people say they came just in time, other people are gnashing their teeth. Whatever side you're on, they are very appealing because in a ways that um, I think people saw the crown performing. They weren't, people were trying to dismiss them as just celebrities, but in fact, just celebrities don't go around spending long time talking to, to veterans, to, to um, the unemployed, showing that kind of formal concern as a representative of the state. And they're, they're, they're young enough, honestly. They're, they're, we, what we hope for them is that they actually can have a life a bit longer together than, than the, the Queen and Prince Philip had. She, she was young once, too. We all, everyone in this room was young once. Um, but um, the Queen got thrown into being Queen at the age of about 23, 24, and, and I think she'd only had about two or three years marriage. Um, and that, that's hard on a relationship. So you don't want William and Catherine there too soon. You want them to be able to have some sort of a life together, and they seem to be handling that quite well. They're a big hit in Canada. I think they should come over lots. That's a big issue as to how often we get to see them. I want them over here lots, but not so much. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's like monarchy light. We get, we get the best of both. We, we, we get to, to have our history brought forward with us, and at the same time, um, we don't have a royal page of the Privy Council, that sort of thing. Thank you for the question. Thank you.
Thank, thank you, John. Um, I, I get to just very briefly thank uh, Master Fraser. Uh, I think you've all seen that nobody convenes a conversation in this country quite like John Fraser. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to be late delivering my Globe and Mail newspapers to my customers because I'd stop before delivering them and read his dispatches from the Shidan Democracy Wall, which were world-breaking news and which were so riveting, I'd stay there and read the paper and almost forget to deliver the darn thing until 7.30. My apologies to the management of the Globe and Mail for that transgression. Um, since then, John has convened the national conversation in so many roles through all his books, and of course, in his role as Master of Massey College for over a decade, the, uh, the convener of, of the great high table of the National Salon, um, which he's done in inimitable fashion uh, and in a way that, uh, that has made us all proud. Um, with his partner, Elizabeth, and with all of his family, uh, he's found the time somehow to, uh, with their support, write this terrific book and bring us all together to convene a conversation about the monarchy in this wonderful Jubilee year. Uh, so please buy the book, share the book, uh, talk about the book, uh, and let's continue the conversation. Thank you for joining us at the Canadian Club for this conversation. Jamie. Well, thank you, John, and uh, thank you, John Fraser, for uh, entertaining and insightful and thoughtful remarks today. This concludes our television broadcast. We continue to be thankful to Rogers Television and to 680 News for their continued promotion of our club events. If you'd like to know about those upcoming events I mentioned at the beginning, you can go to canadianclub.org. Thanks for being here. Lunch is now adjourned. <laughs>